SUSE is a global leader in innovative, reliable, secure enterprise-grade open-source solutions relied upon by more than 60% of the Fortune 500 to power their mission-critical workloads. They specialize in business-critical Linux, enterprise container management and edge solutions, and collaborate with partners and communities to empower customers to innovate everywhere, from the data center to the cloud to the edge and beyond. SUSE puts the open back in open source, giving customers the agility to tackle innovation challenges today and the freedom to evolve their strategy and solutions tomorrow. Welcome to Kubernetes Center of Excellence, episode eight, the Ocho. Got some uh, friendly faces here, some old friends. Rob with us as he joins us uh, pretty regularly, and then my good friend, Carvel Boss. How you guys doing? Good. Thank you. Doing good, Nick. Thanks for having me. So, Carvel, you're you're newish, so you want to give the listening and viewing audience uh, 45 seconds on you? Yeah, sure. So I've been developing software since the mid-90s, started in telecom doing low-level stuff, then moved into a Java world with defense contracting, and then eventually made my way to Kubernetes and containers in the new world. Uh, I've been doing Docker and Kubernetes since 2016, so I've been pretty involved with that for a while, almost since pretty early on. So, And uh, that's about it, actively developing on a CSI project. Very cool. And then we all know Rob, but you just got back from uh, Europe, right? KubeCon 23 in Amsterdam. It was, good. it was a good trip. It was a good packed, packed house. Packed and you house did uh, probably a bunch of content, I assume, out of there? Uh, I think there's, I want to say there's 14 or 15 live interviews I did. So you can okay. go to the Rancher Labs YouTube page and you can watch, uh, you can watch me do what I do live. Cool. We'll put it in the show notes and uh, promote it out as well, because I'm sure that was a lot of fun and insightful. So we'll do that. So the genesis of our conversation is, um, you know, I did one of these uh, hacky LinkedIn things where I said, I posed a question and said, somebody answer the question. Uh, best question, best answers get, a, you know, a burnt Starbucks coffee gift card. And uh, just kidding. Love you, Starbucks. You're my favorite ish um so you guys were quick to respond which means you you won you won the game so but then i was like hey guys let's talk about this on the podcast because i think it'd be cool so the original question and i'm going to paraphrase was opinionated frameworks versus wide open frameworks which is better and to no shock to the audience um you guys may have had a different opinion. And I was like, let's talk about this because I like that. So why don't we start with Rob? Why don't we start with you? Where do you land, you know, like your, uh, your opening argument on where you stand on the position? Uh, I am for opinionated because, well, we're already using opinionated, right? Like, most languages have an opinion. They've been set by the language creator or even the framework creators. Um, it's very rare that I've seen, you know, a native Java app without Quarkus or, or Spring, right? Uh, barring 
things like, oh, it's Android. Well, then you have the Android framework. So you already have things that kind of set that precedence for you. Um, I guess the best way to put it is who's doing like native JavaScript from scratch versus using React or Angular. I mean, sure, maybe a few people, but we're already kind of using it. We've kind of accepted those community standards, community being like a, a group of individuals coming together saying, I like the way we're this direction is and we're going to follow it. So that was my, my take on it. And Carmel. Yeah, I went with the no guardrails approach. I think, you know, just developers having the freedom to do, I would characterize what is best. And that if you're using something that's highly opinionated, you aren't really blazing a trail, you're more or less following a pack. So I think that was base, my basic response on LinkedIn. So, and, you know, I'll still hold that, you know, <laughs> a discussion. So I can think of some pros and cons to both um, off the top of my head. And I'm not a software engineer. So, you know, obviously with opinionated, um, Carl, to your point, there's a path. Um, so when I, you know, when I think of very opinionated, I can go, we can talk about this because it'll, it's old and doesn't matter but like you know think about pivotal labs very opinionated way of building software they actually built like kind of their whole company around that <clears throat> so they got results out of development teams because they were so opinionated but also their their solution was not a uh, maybe built for the future so so thoughts I'll I'm going to jump in here in a real quick, Carvel. Um, I did a lot of work with Pivotal and Pivotal Labs. What was very opinionated is the software delivery process, like the project management. That was hellaciously uh, opinionated. And you couldn't break that 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 way of doing things. Like they would never let you. Like we were paired programming. You're going to do it this way. This is the process. Very opinionated on that. But when it came down to like the framework or this or that they kind of met the customers where they're at in my, in my experience with them. So I've didn't, you know, not to toot my own horn. I did. I'm, I was one of the teams that moved .NET, one of the first .NET applications in production to PCF. Right. So I I've worked with them in that, in that capacity, but it was more of the opinionated on the, this is how we build the software. Not necessarily like, you're going to use spring or you're going to use this. It has to be this way. It wasn't like that in my, in my experience, but Carvel might've had a different one. Yeah. Pivotal is an interesting choice. That's where I cut my teeth and largely in the container world, we did Docker. And then okay. the place I was working for an energy company at the time, and we were doing the deployments uh, using Pivotal Cloud Foundry and mm -hmm. stuff. And, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, it, you got it out there. It was pretty straightforward. I didn't find it limiting, I guess, in that sense. Um, but it certainly kind of gave you the guardrails for like, here's how you're going to deploy your stuff. And we built a solution around that. Um, um, you know, I have no complaints about it. I remember, well, I guess I don't know if I can say this. I remember it being expensive, um, you know, and I think that may have been the thing that <laughs> limited, you know, pivotal, but I don't know. That's just my personal opinion there. Um, That's generally what customers remember pivotal by it was expensive. It was expensive. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not breaking news. You didn't, you didn't break any NDAs there, Carvel. <laughs> yeah. Pivotal, expensive. Yes. 
but if adopted, somewhat effective, I guess, for delivering applications. So maybe that was a bad uh, a bad example. Um, leave it to the the you know sales technical guy to give a bad example. So so let's let's dig in a little deeper. Um, so Carvel, you like you like the freedom. So can you give us an example of like something where you're like, ah, oh, I just love this freedom. This is an example of like my ethos as a, as a technologist. Right. Well, so if I'm the engineer, right, if I'm like the smart guy in the room, you know, which people often refer to the engineers as, um, you know, I want to have the ability to make the choice for whatever is being delivered, the technology and stuff, right. There may be some limiting factors like what a company is willing to pay for like i don't know where you see that you see that with oracle licensing you know that if the company's embedded in oracle you're going to get oracle you know you're kind of stuck there right from a developer perspective because they're higher powers of p but if i have the freedom you know it largely depends upon you know where i'm going and a you know b how fast do i need to get there based on corporate need um so you know when i say uh no guardrails I think it's the ability to make the best choice for what the end game is. A lot of times that end game has to do with feed the market. And, you know, you can't argue with that, but you want to be careful not to take on so much technical debt that it will later burn you. But, you know, there, there becomes a trade-off there. Um, you got to make the good choices up front so that you don't have that. Um, I'm trying to think of what would be a good example. Like right now, my favorite language is Rust, right? It's, fairly new, not totally new. It's fairly new. There are places I would use it and there are places I wouldn't, you know, and it's like, if I don't have access to a lot of rust people and I need, and I have a big project to build, I can't use rust. I have to use something I have access to people for, you know, but if I have choice of technology and developers who can figure it out and pick it up and do that, you know, rust might be my choice for a highly performing app over something like C or C plus plus, for example. Um, in the Java world, I'd choose Scala, hands down, every day, and I'd make them learn it. Just because I find the efficiency of after learning Scala, you know, development teams, my opinion, tend to become better, more efficient, write better code. They're able to reason over the data much better, much faster than Java as a development language permits you to do. So, well, I think that may be a good example of where I'd choose one over the other almost every day of the week. So you kind of point out a something I wrote down in my notes around this talk is, uh, you know, with an open framework, like a downside could be a learning curve. So like, you know, you use Rust and not everybody is uh, probably a proficient Rust developer. So it limits the pool of people you can collaborate with. But usually over time that changes. Like, you know, there weren't a bunch of Go developers back in the day. Now, like a lot of people are doing that. So... Right. But there's also more things being built in Go, which precipitates the need for Go developers. So, you know, I think sometimes that's a, maybe that's just a thing with any new technology. It's like it has to capture the right audience um, so that you can do it at scale. Right. You know, an interesting thing when I was at Red Hat, I was a principal engineer at the time. So, you know, that's in the engineering, a reasonable place to be in the food chain. You know, and I had the ability to influence if, you know, I was able to get the audience and make the case and stuff. And so there was a moment where I was, I'll say, getting into it with an architect over the use of Rust and getting into it. It was a very polite but, you know, opinionated conversation about using Rust 
and, and doing more Rust within Red Hat because Red Hat's largely Java and Python. Um, there was, I think, one Rust project at the time had to do with one of the installers for, I don't remember specifically, but there was an installer doing Rust. And I was talking like, hey, let's do more Rust. Let's do this. Let's do that. You know, I have this thing I want to do. It's, you know, Rust. And he's like, no, don't really want to go there. You know, and I, as best as I recall it, his opinion was largely around, um, A, we don't have the skill set at the time to do it. And there wasn't enough uptake by developers in order to build that skill set fast enough, right? Or willingness to do so, I guess, you know, um, mm. you know, which was interesting, but, you know, disappointing for me in the time. So I have run into that where I felt like Rust would be a better solution. And it was like, nope, can't do that. You know, not now anyways, you know. I, I think it's the people are adamant about jumping into a new language based on whether it's technical debt or they're gun shy because they've heard it before and they get someone who's not necessarily building the app for them. They're building the resume. And that has been something that has been a, like a, a, a cautionary flag with everything. So when you, you see, you know, and to be fair, I, I write in rust. Um, I write kube board and policies. I talk about that quite extensively in rust and there's a learning curve. But a lot of times where, you know, I bring up Rust and people are like, well, can we just use Java? Like we, Java can do everything. It runs on billions of devices. And they, it's, it's, it gets people get kind of gun shy, especially when it comes to like that, that mid-level technical leadership. Because, you know, when we are, when we are, you know, if you're consulting, you're gone, right? And someone's got to maintain it and they get nervous going like, what am I left with? Um, but I agree with your assessment about Scala. I think um, that was spot on. Yeah. You know, Rust is, is, is funny. So I look at Java and I go, there's a lot of plumbing to do a simple step. And that's one of the reasons I didn't don't care for it anymore, where in Scala, if I wanted to create a class, Scala, it's like one line of code. Java, it's like 10, mm -hmm. you know, getters, setters, and all that stuff. And, 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 you know, so learning Scala, there's a curve because of the, the syntax can be cumbersome, especially with all the special characters and the operators that use them and, and what they do. And then you have Rust, and I find the biggest challenge for uptake on Rust has to do with memory kind of thing and the usage of memory and how memory is being tracked and the compiler will slap you in the face if you do the wrong thing, which is very easy to do in Rust. But that's the point of the language, to have fewer uh, memory errors, fewer bugs, fewer problems, you know, CVEs on a deployed application. And, you know, coming from a C, C++ background, I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, I love this, you know. And, you know, as a C programmer, I would say, I don't see memory as a problem. You just got to be smart about what you do. But I think later, later on, colleges started picking up Java as a primary language to teach because it was a little easier to teach. Um, and then concerns about memory and all that weren't as ingrained or instilled in developers. So now today we have, in my view, we have a group of developers who don't really think in those terms. So it's hard for them to adopt something where you're forced to think in those terms. They'd rather have the language handle it for you using garbage collection or whatever. But then there's the argument of performance if you can get away from that. So yeah, there's the trade-offs there. But from my background, I like the idea of performance and writing performant code. Um, I think that also lends towards when we talk about opinionated solutions like frameworks and stuff like that, every framework I've seen has a trade-off. You know, they will, you know, the framework will do something 
And it may not be the best code underneath, but it gets the job done, right? And so that's mm -hmm. a great way to get the market fast. But then like Hibern I remember Hibernate being one of these types of things or some of the ORM stuff for Java um, where you're doing something and it just wasn't moving fast enough and you'd eventually have to replace something in that layer to make it go faster. Just because, you know, the framework was trying to balance the best of both worlds, right? It was trying to be everything to everyone. And to do that, you're going to give up something, typically performance. And so, again, that's where I lean towards, hey, I'd rather have no guardrails. Let me make that decision. You know, if this ORM works and it's fast enough, great. If not, then I probably need to write it and use that. And the impact there is time to market. So I guess I, I want to go back to something you said is that we have an entire generation of programmers that haven't needed to worry about memory, right? And I think that's what's lending to the reliance on an opinionated platform because we haven't needed it. And I think there's times where, I mean, should someone write their own authentication framework? If you really need to, um, are there frameworks out there that have been proven, that are tested, that are, you know, open source that everyone's looking at that you could use? Sure. I mean, that there's, there's a ton of them, but should you write your own? And I think it's where, you know, where's the business value come at, right? Because at the end of the day, we all work for businesses and, you know, we all like to make money, but I mean, is there business value from using a framework? And I guess that, you know, I guess you could argue there is trade-offs for it, you know, where, you know, are you willing to put your security out there in a, in, in a different sense by using that or on the other side have people inside write it but with a generation of developers as you said that are you know you know never had to worry about memory and garbage collection that might be problematic right yeah it's you know it's That's... interesting i'm sorry go ahead Nick. no go ahead go ahead i you know, like one of the, I guess one of the modern, you know, arguments we can see like now is like Rancher versus OpenShift, right? Or vanilla Kubernetes versus OpenShift or something like that. And I think everybody agree mm -hmm. OpenShift is a highly opinionated platform. I mean, it does things a certain way and all that it kind of gives you everything out of the box. And, you know, Rob, correct me if I'm wrong. My view of Rancher is it gives you the basics and then you can add and wire stuff in and kind of move in more along the lines of what you want to do. Um, and with these platforms, I found that developers, because the cloud is like unlimited resources, and that's kind of the idea behind it, it goes back to that, hey, I don't have to worry about memory, I don't have to worry about resources. And to that extent, it allows developers the freedom to write code that may not be as performant or may not be as efficient as what it would be if the target were bare metal or the target were something like Raspberry Pi or ARM you know, like uh, an ARM device and you know, small things, IOT, I guess, is the best way to put that kind of thing where, you know, there are, are places where you do have to worry about that, like cellular and, you know, those kind of things. Um, but I think, you know, the college thing as well, but also now the fact that we have just what looks to be unlimited resources, which is not true, you got to pay for it, but there's no restrictions with the cloud necessarily, except for money. And so developers just kind of go, hey, let's write this and let's make this and let's use this framework and let's build this huge thing. And then you got to end up tailoring it back down. So I think there are current things in the marketplace that also lend to that type of thinking. I, I would throw it back to that resume driven development, right? Oh, we're going to write <laughs> everything in Lambda. 
like it can't be expensive it's great we i, I want to make sure i can put that on my cv and and i we, we see that quite frequently so are you saying that developers will adopt the technology simply to have it on their resume <laughs> yeah oh, straight up i'll tell you i mean yeah. <laughs> i think we've all done it though let's be fair i if i will i will admit i've done it and there's probably a better there was probably a better solution but i was weighing uh, you know personal you know uh, as of when I was a developer, I was weighing it going, I look really good on my resume. Yeah, we'll just go down the route. It doesn't matter that their developers can't figure this out and they won't be able to use it, but who cares? They'll figure that out. I'm a consultant. I'm out of, I'm out in, in six months. <laughs> That's funny. Well, let's take a quick break and then we'll round this up on the end. Shadowsoft, a leading Kubernetes systems integrator, is excited to announce the launch of Kubernetes Academy, a free online education platform to teach the skills needed to become proficient in Kubernetes. The Shadowsoft Kubernetes Academy platform offers courses and resources for learners of all levels, from beginners just starting to learn about containerization to experienced professionals looking to dive deeper into the intricacies of Kubernetes. Kubernetes Academy is now available at academy.shadowsoft.com. Start learning today and join the thousands of IT professionals already on the path to becoming Kubernetes experts. Shadowsoft helps you make optimal possible. All right, and welcome back. So, thought. If you're using a an, uh, non-opinionated framework tool platform, Thoughts on security? Go. I love what I just did. Did you say non-opinionated? I'm like trying to it's on, if it's unopinionated, thoughts on security. Here's me, um, like the barn's on fire. Like that's there's. I, I would question certain things, but it, I think you need to frame it up into the context, right? It, are we writing a modern web application? Yeah, probably. Are we writing an IO, you know, something that runs on a IOT device that's, you know, sitting in a factory somewhere? I would lean more towards Carvel's side on that one. Give it an unopinionated, let the let the developer have the language they need, you know, and then you're gonna secure it in other ways, right? Um, knowing that most IOTs done that way. I would I would I wouldn't say I would worry less about it. But I would definitely worry more if it was like, oh, yeah, we're going to build this web app and it's going to be running in Azure. And I have so many other factors on security. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would I would trust the security on that one. But Carvel? Yeah, you know, it's that's a great question. I mean, they're multi layers of defense. And so it really depends upon how strong your outer walls are. Like I worked with a group whose network security was just absolutely insane. Like I was working on standing up, uh, yeah, OpenShift in their network, and we had to reach a, a GitLab server they had, and it went through like three firewalls. And I spent like a day with networking, just trying to get the two things to communicate, because it was locked down so tight. Now, in that instance, I probably wouldn't care as much about security on the running app because I know there's so mm -hmm. many layers of defense that are running around it. And if somebody got in, you know, they're brilliant. They're smart. You know, they, they should be hired, you know, and they'd make millions, you know, figuring stuff out. For companies. Um, but it just, you know, they were so paranoid about 
their data getting exposed that they just put layer after layer after layer of physical security, network, routers, firewalls, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so then at that point, the framework probably matters less. Um, but if you're like direct facing, you know, right close to the internet where somebody can just try to break in and that kind of thing, then yeah, it matters a lot more. In that case, I'd be much more um, critical about the things I was choosing. Um, but, you know, often security gets traded for time to market, which, which is unfortunate. Um, and then mm -hmm. I go back to something like Rust, where security is really a, a first person type of thing. I don't forget what I'm trying to say there, but, you know, it's, um, it's first important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, you know, you're writing code in a way that is meant to be secure and the compiler's enforcing it and stuff. Again, one of the reasons I like Rust, the trade-off, it's hard, you know, and just people may just not want to invest that effort to figuring that out. But so if you do that with the app, then, you know, the other things in that ecosystem, you know, they tend to be more secure as well because they're written in similar ways. So I think we'll see more adoption of that over time, but that's just going to take time because it's something that's more difficult for the modern day developer to pick up. You know, Rust may have been easier to adopt when C and C++ were in the heyday, simply because people thought like that. Now they don't. So are you saying a generation of developers that are uh, maybe entering the workforce now would likely look at Rust and go, that's a lot? Um, you know, good question. Because you have... Uh, I don't know. The generation now seems to be, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, right? No. It's, 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 no. Entitlement? Uh, There's none of that. I, I, I think I think, <laughs> I think. think we need to take it. Like, what, what type of... So, uh, Carvel, I, don't, I, am, I, I do not subscribe to the full stack developer. Um, that, that's, right. to me, a full, like, I, I, don't, I don't believe in that. That's the, you're, if you say you're full stack, you're basically a back-end developer who, you know, button mashes front-end code. If you are a front end developer, right, mm -hmm. you you don't care, you would never look at it. Rust would never be an option for you, right? And so you don't care to it, right? You just like I, they just they're not going to care. They're going to like I'm on the front end. I stay on the front end. That's that's what I do. I have an entire different framework to worry about. I have entirely different things I have to worry about. You know, does it work in this browser? Does it work in that browser? Why does it work in Edge and not Chrome? What what's going right. on yeah. here? So it's it, it's their world's different for the back end. I, 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 I'm completely with you. It's like Rust is an option. They, they should be able to jump in and, and learn it. True. True. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a back end. That's kind of my history. I hate browser development. Can't stand it. Won't do JavaScript, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm not a front end guy. Um, you know, like for me, I'd try to use Wasm with Rust and make that work mm -hmm. and then just frustrate myself. And then, you know, probably hire a JavaScript guy, right? I mean, that's where, I mean, JavaScript's kind of the thing, and there are a thousand guys out there who do it, guys and girls who do it, you know, front end, yeah, it's JavaScript all day long right now until something better comes along. And I just, I just don't see anything better at the moment. Another framework six months from now you know, in JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that'll be. <laughs> so, Most likely. Yeah. Any parting thoughts? Uh, I would probably say that I, there's there's a there's a lot of weight to some of the points that Carvel made, and I agree with that. You know, you should give the developers you know as much freedom as they can possibly handle, but not to 
but I would still maintain that we're still using opinionated platforms. We're still using, you know, particular Rust libraries because you know they're they're, they're out there. There's proven, and I will concede that there are trade offs to it. But we we are we are using more and more opinionated things, you know, nowadays versus I have some right to scratch from C plus plus. So what you we're know, finding is moderation wins again. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think there's always some of that. I think if a developer is going to use an opinionated platform, they better understand what the trade-offs are. They need to know those. Because, you know, when you use it, if you don't know what that is going into, you're going to get bit in technical debt and performance and or security. You know, one of those things is going to bite you. And you need to know which going into it because you got to, make time in your sprints or whatever to actually handle it before it becomes the real issue. <clears throat> I think that's well said. Well, guys, this is a, this is a special point in time. We are under 30 minutes for the first time in the history of this podcast. Wow. Look what we did together using an opinionated start. One question. <laughs> I just want to say, who's not here that kept us under 30 minutes? Derek. That's that's right. <laughs> I mean, I, oh. I, I'm i just saying you said it. I didn't. But like, you know, so I, like, I said it. I, listen, Derek can talk. He, he can get after it. Opinionated. He is highly opinionated. He's highly opinionated. And he's also good at flabbing the gums. <laughs> Very good at it. Well, guys, thanks so much. This is a good chat. Got it under 30 minutes. If I keep talking, we won't be under 30 minutes. So we got to go. All right. Thanks, See you guys. Dynatrace exists to make the world software work perfectly. Their unified software intelligence platform combines broad and deep observability and continuous runtime application security with the most advanced AI ops to provide answers and intelligent automation from data at an enormous scale. This enables innovators to modernize and automate cloud operations, deliver software faster and more securely, and ensure flawless digital experiences. That is why the world's largest organizations trust Dynatrace to accelerate digital transformation.